Imagine that I told you that in North America, there were maybe three or four rivers in the entire continent where it was still practical to go fishing for largemouth bass because everywhere else their numbers were so depleted you couldn't it wouldn't be a bother you wouldn't uh, it wouldn't be practical to go fishing with a hook and line and that is the situation of the Nile perch in the original riverine habitat today that's it that's it for a for a species that has representation um, in, and is a and is a very sustainable species and is fast breeding, fast growing, uh, you know. And, and to think that it's almost wiped out to a point that you can't go and catch it with a hook and line across such a vast area is is mind blowing. There are people who are haunted by fish and wild places. This is Ed Truter, the David Livingston of fly fishing. In today's episode, Ed talks to us about the Nile perch in West Africa, how to conserve fish stocks, and why he feels so many fishermen are blind. I'm your host, Gordon van der Spey. Don't panic, this is The Feather Mechanic. What is it exactly that you do? Man, yeah, so, the, let, let's just go, we'll go a couple of steps back. Uh, so, I mean, everybody in their life, you know, needs to needs to make a living, um, or most people need to try to earn a living. So, yeah. uh, when I when I had to make that choice as a as a young man, I I decided that uh, I would I would study geology and work as a geologist. So mm-hmm. I I liked that idea because uh, it would. You know, I have this enormous um, attraction to wild places. So it was like, you know, if I'm working in exploration geology, I'll be sent to wild places. People will pay me money to go to wild places. And and I've always wanted to travel and, and just to see more of the world, uh, which has been tremendously, I mean, that, that, that cliche of uh, travel broadens the mind. There was never, I think, a truer cliche than that. Eventually, eventually, I got to the point which didn't take that long. When I was like, okay, I've had enough of working in in, in geology now. Um, there might be the option to to work in um, in something in something closer to my heart. And um, at the same time, an opportunity presented itself uh, in Gabon when the when the national parks network was just being formed. Uh, so there were all these new national parks, and uh, there was a place that I used to visit because um, at the time I was actually living in West Africa. So there was mm-hmm. a place I used to visit for holidays, and um, that uh, it was just a little fishing camp. And that little fishing camp got bought by a an investor, and um, I just out of my own I contacted that investor and I gave him a whole lot of advice that he never asked for. Um, and and one thing led to another, and he said, "Well, well, won't you come and help us? Yeah, with this, with this." So the project at that time was a joint venture between the then uh, manager of national parks and this private individual and a conservation NGO. So I went there and and I volunteered my time for a while, and um, and and I enjoyed it, and they enjoyed having me there. And well, in the end, I was there for four years. Um, and and lived there. I lived there for four years. 
through my travels, I had ideas of certain areas, and so I would I would go back and look at those. I would contact whoever that land fell under, if it was national parks um, or, or a community, government land, whatever, and, and would pitch to them and say, you know, there's potential in this area for X and X tourism or sport fishing as niche-based tourism um, to have a commercial product that uh, – could ultimately, you know, bring some revenue into the area and, and create some greater good. Uh, so I started doing that, and and I, that's kind of what I've been doing ever since. Um, and for for many years, in fact, up until up until uh, just before COVID, actually, I, I did that work uh, pro bono. So um, I, I did a lot of I did a lot of work in Gabon actually with the with the with the government as well. It was always always pro bono because um, because I, I always felt well if it's not pro bono you're just stealing money from conservation. But anyway, for the last um, for the for the last two or so years, I've actually uh, become a a financial partner in one of the uh, or or in the in the West African operations of African waters. So, so, and how did fishing start for you? Was there a family connection there? Was there a dad or a grandfather who, who started yeah. from that? So fishing, I, I mean, it's no exaggeration if I say I was fishing before I was born. Uh, so, so my father, my father is a very passionate outdoorsman. Um, and uh, I mean, he, he Everything he did in life was pretty much also so he could just be involved with uh, fishing, hunting, and the outdoors his whole life. Um, when I was born, he was he was running or he owned a fishing tackle and and gun shop uh, in Port Alfred, mm-hmm. and um, and he was he was also a real pioneer in in South Africa. His his influence was the southeastern United States. So he was. He was reading all the American magazines, you know, Saltwater Sportsman, uh, Grey Sporting Journal. Um, he's and all of the books. He he he, he was just absorbing that stuff that was coming, like I said, from the east coast and and southeast coast of of the of the US. Mm-hmm. So um, so he he was importing a lot of lures. He was he was he was the first person to. Um, to import uh, graphite rods into South Africa, the first person to import graphite fly rods and build and build graphite fly rods. Oh. Um, he was he was saltwater fly fishing in the 1960s. Um, if you scratch around in some of the very early tight lines magazines, you'll find articles by him on on saltwater fly fishing in the Eastern Cape in Mozambique. He was also he was also fishing lures and importing. Uh, he was the first person to import Rapala lures into South Africa. All the soft—I mean, he was fishing soft plastics in the salt water in the 1960s. So, um, so I—I I, I had this tremendous, um, this tremendous introduction from the earliest age of fishing in very dynamic ways. You know, a, mm-hmm. a lot of South, a lot of South Africans sort of start off with bait fishing and then progress into lure or fly. Um, but I was very lucky that I had somebody's shoulders uh, to stand on as far as you know fishing artificials and fly from from my absolute youngest memory, uh, mm-hmm. and and that's just sort of continued until this day. 
you know, I've always viewed you as a bit of a David Livingston of fly fishing. I always see pictures of you catching man-sized Nile perch in Cameroon or massive tarpon off the beach in Gabon or, you know, kingies, wherever. But you've, you're always holding a massive fish somewhere. How do you find these places? I guess it boils down to the, the attraction to wild places. So, I mean, in today's world, in the in the I mean it's far, you know in the developed world there's proper fisheries management and you can go into uh, you know you can go to downtown Miami and you can catch uh, you know a massive fish surrounded by a population of five million humans. Um, but outside of the developed world, which is really I guess most of the world, um, mm. the only the only opportunity you're going to get uh, to have well, to even catch a fish on a hook and line. Is uh, it either has to be in a very wild place, far removed from a human population, or it has to be in a place where the human population has no sort of cultural dependence um, on 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 fish. So yeah, so it starts with just identifying those wild places, and and my radar is constantly on high alert for wild places like. Um, it just it just catches my eye, and it's not always in Africa. It might be in Central Asia or wherever. Like if I see a photograph that looks wild, you know, mm-hmm. it gets. If I see a photograph, or, or if I'm watching something on TV, and I can, and it's an aerial shot, and I see there's no roads or houses in the background, that gets stored somewhere in my database. So I've got this, I've got this database in in my mind that's that's. It's building all these wild parts um, of the world. And every now and again, one of those really sort of attracts me for a specific reason. And then, and then I guess I, I research it a little more, um, you know, closely um, and try and connect with people who, who've been there or work there or associated with it. Um, and I mean, it's just got easier and easier to to connect with uh, with people around the world, but it yeah it it really just starts from from looking for the conditions that uh, allow for for wildness or protection and and yeah and and just building up a knowledge a, a knowledge database of 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 geography and understanding of 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 the world and I, I guess I'm lucky in that. Um, I, I retain geographical information very well. As I've also got to the point if I if I visit an area mm. uh, that that I think is amazing, that has potential, um, but where the where the human presence, say, of a tourism operator couldn't actually create some kind of greater good, then then I prefer just to. Uh, zip it close and walk away. Um, but I mean, that, that doesn't often happen nowadays. Uh, you know, so much of the world needs help that um, you know, there's most, most places need help in one way or another. So tell me, how did you, how did you initially get into fly fishing? I actually got into it a bit late. I remember every time my dad was uh, experimenting on the ro- on the on, on the lawn with a new rod that he had built um, or, or trying to improve his casting, then then I'd be standing there with a shitty old piece of fly line and the top half of a fly rod, you know, trying to cast. And I actually, 
I actually asked him many times to sort of teach me and he kind of never got around to it. And, and so I, I only got into it like seriously um, when I was about 11, uh, you know, which I, I, I should have started uh, much earlier. So, yeah, I only, you know, got uh, like actually got my own fly rod and did like dedicated fly fishing trips from about the age of 11, 12, thereabouts. Um, so, yeah, a bit of a late start. Well, look, I do think you being a conventional fisherman and a lure fisherman had a massive impact on your fly fishing. Um, because if you think you don't learn from other forms of fishing, you're mistaken. I mean, classic example, Ed, the whole game changer thing that, that, that sort of has taken the world by storm over the last few years. You know, if you look at those game changer flies, those things are modeled on lures. Let's face it. Yeah, Gordon. Well, I mean, um, I feel very passionate about this subject that you're touching on now um, because I believe, I don't know how to say this in a way that makes sense, but I believe the best fly fisherman is a fisherman. And, yeah. and there's absolutely no doubt. I mean, I mix with fishermen all the time. I see, I'm involved with fishing and fishermen all the time. And by far, the most successful fishermen are those who's, who, who are polyvalent um, and who started, who started their, their lives, uh, you know, fishing worms for bluegills or papkoying or whatever. There is not a single aspect of one dynamic of fishing that cannot be applied to the other dynamic of fishing. They, mm-hmm. they, 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 there's constant... There's constant cross-pollination um, between the various facets of, of fishing. Like I say, right, right from the, you know, the fishing paste baits for carp, uh, you know, to the dry fly fishing for trout. There are, there are lessons about fish. There are lessons about nature. There are lessons about presentation um, that, are, that are just there, caught up in, in all of that big melting pot just all the time. It's all connected and I actually feel uh, you know from time to time you meet you meet fly fishermen who are I want to say they actually anti other forms of, of angling um, you know yes. I understand you know I love if I've got a choice I will always fly fish um, rather than any other technique just because for me it's the most fun it's the most direct it's often the most challenging not always Um but it's the most fun. So when I can, I will always fly fish. But I won't say that I love fly fishing more than any of the other kinds of fishing. Um, and when I see a fly fisherman whose who's mind isn't open to just sort of trying some of that other stuff, I actually feel sorry for them because I'm like, you are cutting yourself short from a, in, a, in a learning perspective. So if it's important for you to learn, and a lot of – a lot of fly fishermen, especially the young guys, you know, they're ravenous learners. They want to learn, learn, learn. I so say you want to learn, then like be a bit more dynamic in your approach into the techniques that you want to try because you will find, I mean, if I take many of the lure fishing techniques that we use, um, I mean, they are so subtle and they, they, are, they are so, they are way, way, way more variables in fishing lures 
than there are in fishing flies. Way more variables. And mm -hmm. so lure fishing is actually way more dynamic. Um, so fly fishing is almost just a simplified form of lure fishing. So also if you want to really learn and, and really fast track your learning, um, you know, take on, take on fishing uh, more conventional means and especially fishing lures. You'll learn so much from it. If you had to give someone advice, someone who wants to start fly fishing, what advice would you give them? To me, the, ovary, the, average, the average human is blind, is mm -hmm. absolutely blind. They look, but they don't see. Yes. So, so when I'm on the water, um, you know, when I, I, was, I was fishing this weekend and, and just you watch the people around you and you watch how people are going through the motions. But their motions a lot of the time are not adequately informed. Um, so what I want to, what I'm trying to say is inform yourself through knowledge. Um, and there's many ways to inform yourself through knowledge. You know, nowadays it's better than it ever was. Well, maybe there's too much information. You know, you've got books, you've got the internet, you've got YouTube. There's incredible sources of information. Try and try and inform every activity you do or every component of every activity that you do based in some theory that's based on your observation or your knowledge. That way, if it fails, you, you adjust it. You adjust it until and then, you, then you test your next, your next hypothesis. But it should be a constant, a constant um, process of uh, observe, um, create, test, adjust, fail, adjust, test again, fail again, or succeed, you know. Um, mm -hmm. but, but don't be blind. Like, open your eyes. Um, inform yourself of what's around you and how it works, you know. <laughs> the, the other bit of absolutely critical advice that I want to give to a new fly fisherman, and this is the bit that I think is going to surprise you. Right now, there is a massive problem in the world with fly fishing gear. And what I mean by that is that fly fishing gear, if you just follow the numbers, is you're going to end up with unbalanced stuff. So you're uh -huh. going to end up with buying a line that's going to cast like a heap of shit on your rod and you're going to get very frustrated. I mean, I had a classic case the other day. I had an experienced youngster. He's actually working for us in Gabon at the moment. He arrived. Um, he's been fly fishing geez, most of his life. He had beautiful, he's, he's, he's sponsored by Orvis. He had beautiful equipment. And I picked up his one rod and I was like, man, this, this rod's got totally the wrong line on it. And, mm -hmm. um, and I said, yeah, come here, let's swap this reel. Da, 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 da. Let's put this line on. Yeah, geez, like, and then with one false cast, you know, we were casting almost the entire line. And his, his eyes just popped out of his head. Um, and, and, and what has happened in, in a nutshell is that fly fishing man, the rod manufacturers have continued this rod race of, of, of using high modulus materials and, and increasing the speed of fly rods way beyond the capabilities of the average person's casting stroke with the mm -hmm. so-called lines that are supposed to be on those rods. Um, and so if you just follow the numbers, you're going to end up nine times out of ten with, a, with an unbalanced, unloaded system. Um, 
So you really need to these days, uh, you know, consult with someone who's way more experienced with than you just to find balanced gear that's working for you. And if your line, if if you are battling, if if the thing, if your line isn't shooting out there with no effort, there's a problem. So just be aware of that. It just everything needs to work together smoothly. If it's not, there's a problem, and fix that. Okay, now let's talk about Cameroon. How did it happen that you that you got that you gravitated towards hunting? Let's call it hunting those Nile perch in Cameroon. Very simply, uh, so when I said I was working, started my career as a geologist. Uh, one of the first jobs that I took, and the very reason that I took the job was because um, the, it was working for Anglo-American at the time and working in West Africa. Mm-hmm. So I was employed as a specialist and I was based in uh, what we call the capital of the universe, a city called Ouagadougou, which is the capital of Burkina Faso. And, um, and from there, I worked throughout the West African region, mostly the, mostly the Francophone countries. Uh, when I arrived in Burkina in March and I tried to go fishing every weekend, so uh, it's a savanna country. There's limited water, but I would suss out water here, yeah, a river there, and I would go fishing every weekend because I really wanted to catch an Nile perch. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, you know, what many people don't know is that you know the Nile perch is actually a riverine fish. It's not this. It's not this fish that evolved in lakes. It's mm-hmm. actually a fish that evolved in the savanna rivers of Africa. And um, you know it's. Um, the real stronghold of its original distribution is that the central West African savannas. And uh, anyway, so I tried to catch an Nile perch and I caught nothing. I caught my first Nile perch on Christmas day of that first year. So remember I started in like the end of March. So that was the, well, maybe I was just super cuck fisherman, um, but you know, you keep your you keep your lure fly in the water. You know, sooner or later something's going to happen. Well, it took me um, from from the beginning of April to Christmas Day to catch my first Nile perch. That's how depleted the fishery is. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same applies to all of the wildlife. So, I mean, in the entire time that I lived and worked in West Africa in the field. I never, I never saw an animal larger than a hedgehog, um, and I mean, and, and like I know how to look for animals, and um, <laughs> so the 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 degree of depletion of the Sahelio Sudanian savanna landscape is was always mind blowing to me, and also very sad that nobody was taking it seriously. But um, at the same time, I also wanted to find a place where, you know, the Nile perch still existed in its home in, in, in numbers where you could maybe go and catch one. Um, and, and through the conservation network, I, I made contact with somebody um, in one of the protected, in one of the hunting blocks um, in, in Cameroon. And, um, and that's what then one thing led to another. And, and that's how, it, um, it it got to where it is, and and he has an amazing story. We we went the, on the first trip when we went to that location. Um, in the last in the last hundred meter drive up to our, up to the camp up to the hunting camp, 
I saw more wildlife in that last 100 meters of road than all my years in West Africa put together, which puts into context um, how well preserved the small corridor of protected areas is in Cameroon and why it is so critically important that it, it be conserved, because it is one of the last relatively intact islands of that habitat and everything that's within it, uh, within an area that's basically a quarter the size of Africa. So, uh, I mean, it's crazy. I always, I, I tell, I, I, to put it in context, imagine that I told you that in North America, there were maybe three or four rivers in the entire continent where it was still practical to go fishing for largemouth bass because everywhere else their numbers were so depleted you couldn't, it wouldn't be a bother, it, it, you wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't be practical to go fishing with a hook and line. Mm -hmm. And that is the situation of the Nile perch in their original riverine habitat today. You know, outside of, outside of this corridor in Cameroon, a few areas in the Central African Republic, um, a, a tiny spot in northern Benin, and, uh, and maybe one area in Senegal, that's it. That's it. For a for a species that has representation, um, in and is a and is a very sustainable species and is fast breeding, fast growing, uh, you know, and, and to think that it's almost wiped out to a point that you can't go and catch it with a hook and line across such a vast area is is mind blowing. To me. Do you think Nile perch can be saved? Their numbers can be resuscitated, and if so, what's the way forward? Yeah, I mean, totally. The, the, I mean, most natural systems are incredible how fast they bounce back. The moment you give them some protection or some, you know, protection is a bit of a tricky word. Let's say management. Um, the moment they come under, under intelligent management, uh, mm. the, they bounce back so quickly. So the moment you look after nature, everything within nature looks after itself. So all it all it takes is um, is you have to come up with ways that uh, allow you to to manage these places. Getting back to the fishing now, if there was anything you could change in fly fishing, what would it be? That question. The first thing I want to see changed in fly fishing is the resolution of this technical mess up with white rods and white lines. So what I, what I want to see happen tomorrow is that all rods have a grain weighting on them in numbers, which is pure mathematics because it's a weight scale. They say uh, this rod requires a line that weighs from 200 to 250 grains and that that information is on all boxes and everything and explained to people. So I want to see that happen because it will transform the enjoyment of fly fishing for so many, all of a sudden, 80% of the people right now who cast for shit will actually say, geez, I can cast. So that's one <laughs> thing. And, and I can't believe that that is not a conversation that is central to the fly fishing world and the fly fishing industry. I, it's like, is it just me? It's like, and, and I know it's not just me because when I, when I show somebody else, I see their face light up. So I, I know I'm not making this stuff up. Um, yeah, what I would like to see is just more fly fishermen 
being a bit more dynamic. And by dynamic, I mean in everything in, in their lives, in, um, in their approach to uh, taking on other kinds of fishing, um, if they want to learn more. Um, and yeah, just, just being more dynamic in opening their eyes and learning more. Learn, I mean, the, it's another one of those cliches that say the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. And yeah. and that and and that is so true. I mean, I, I still feel when I when I walk into the bush or onto the water, like like I know nothing because I know just enough to realize how much I don't know. So yeah, I just want to say to people, open your eyes um, and 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 you know look and think and watch and and force yourself to process what you're seeing. You'll you will get so much more out of it and you will also ultimately be able to contribute more back. Okay, Ed, just as an aside, if what are your favorite fishing flies? When it comes to like the real specifics, there's, there's, there's maybe, maybe don't have a favorite fly, but maybe I do. Um, I almost want to say I have more favorite materials than I have favorite flies, and I'm sure for most uh, semi-experienced fly fishermen, those materials are going to be the same. But mm-hmm. um, let's just say I love stuff that's tied with bucktail and wispy blacktail. I love wispy, um, you know, uh, it's, yesterday a very well-known fly fisherman sent me a photo of a fly. And he said, what do you think of this? And, and I thought his fly sucked, but I didn't want to say that. So um, I just told him it was pretty because it was pretty. But I didn't think it was going to catch fish. But he had done such a nice job, I didn't want to tell him that. And the reason why I thought that that fly wasn't going – it would catch fish, but it wouldn't be – it wouldn't have magic. And it's just because it was too dense. Um, it didn't have, like, the the, the feeling of life. Um, the, and, and that's the problem with most flies. They're just they're too dense. They're not wispy enough. There's not enough movement. But bucktail, uh, tide right, is one of those materials that lends itself to that, and fish love it. So when people ask me, what do you think of this? I say, well, I don't really know, but let the fish decide. Like, let's let the fish decide. And the fish have told me, me anyway, I don't know about other people, that they love bucktail. So I love stuff with a good quality wispy bucktail. Um, if I must choose one or two flies, um, I really love the, uh, the Andino-style fly. Um, you know, just something that's got some nice natural uh, saddle hackles tied behind it with some spun deer or clip springer up front and some bucktail in the middle. That That is just uh, an absolute great uh, fish catcher uh, you know, all around the world for just, it's just so much magic in that style of fly and fish eat it. You know, the proof is, is, is in the pudding. So um, I'm a huge believer in that. Um, and then uh, like on the, uh, you know, I've been working for years. I, I, I think I'm on the same journey that you are in that I've reached a point in my fly tying. I want every and, – and in all of my fishing, I want everything to become simpler. I want mm-hmm. to use fewer flies, fewer materials, fewer lures, but I want them to work better. Um, and it almost takes more skill, I think, to find a material and tie it in such a way that it's simpler but actually catches more fish than something else. So yeah. – uh, like I've been working on a, on a, on a, on a, like a, a woolly bugger variation that is, 
that I've really simplified and that really catches fish for me. Um, just sort of by focusing, by simplifying it and focusing on a few um, magic materials. And so uh, I want to say that little project is, is, is a bit, has been one of my favorite projects recently. Um, the, the working on a few specific flies to simplify them, but make them catch more fish than for me they ever did before. So it's, it's almost, almost my favorite projects. Listen, yeah, thank you very much for coming on the show today. I know it took a while for us to hook this up, and I'm glad we did because, really, it's been fantastic. Uh, I've learned a lot, and hopefully listeners will learn a lot too. Mm-hmm.